Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Mark Graben here. It is episode 448 for June 22nd, 2022. My guest today is Rich Sheridan. You'll learn more about him in a minute. He's the CEO of Menlo Innovations. For links and video and a transcript and more, go to leanblog.org slash 448. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome again to the podcast. My guest today is Rich Sheridan. He is co-founder, CEO, and chief storyteller at Menlo Innovations, a software and IT consulting firm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They've earned numerous awards and a lot of press coverage for uh, their innovative and positive workplace culture. Rich, you might realize, is a returning guest. He was here in episode 189 back in 2014. That was the same year, uh, the same month, January 2014, when I had the chance to visit the Menlo Innovations office. So there's a link to the blog post I wrote about that. And that first episode, um, links to those are both in the show notes. So back then, we talked about his first book that was titled Joy, Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love. And his latest book, published in 2019, is Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. So before I tell you a little bit more, uh, Rich, welcome. Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Mark. It, it's almost like a time capsule here, uh, thinking back to January 2014 and uh how much has happened since then, I guess. <laughs> well, and I tell you, I'm almost embarrassed that, I mean, I've known the book's been out for a while. Um, I wanted to have you on. I, I should have reached out sooner, but yeah, I guess pandemic time and everything that's been in the way. But I, I see uh, your, your your background. You're, you're still in the same office space, right? We are, yeah. Uh, although uh, just for a little bit more, we're, we're actually going to be moving uh, September 1st. And, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll be leaving our wonderful space. that has been our home for the last 10 years and, uh, and going on a new space adventure. So we'll, we'll talk more about that later. There's fewer people in the background, it seems than normal times, you know, for those who are just listening, you can check out the YouTube version. Uh, you probably won't see any dogs or babies in the background, uh, less of that these days, right? <laughs> Yes, uh, no babies right now. I think there's a probably a safety concern about bringing babies into an office these days. So we'll have a chance to learn more about how the business has evolved, how the practices at Menlo have evolved. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about the Michigan Lean Consortium Annual Conference. It's going to be held August 10th and 11th in Traverse City, Michigan. You can learn more at michiganlean.org. And, and the one reason I mentioned that is that Rich is going to be one of the keynote speakers. He's going to be giving a talk titled Lead with Joy and Watch Your Team Fly. So again, that's August 10th and 11th in Traverse City. And you can tell I, uh, Michigan is my home state because I, I know how to say it might sound incorrect uh, to people when they see it, but um, Traverse City, Michigan. <laughs> I would never have thought about that, Mark. You're right. Some others would probably traverse city. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I ever see reference, hear about it in the national news, they'll they'll say traverse city and I'll cringe. But so, again, I'll encourage people to go check out the Michigan Lean Consortium event. There's a link to that also in the show notes. 
So again, if you haven't heard it, I mean, you can get a deeper dive into this with Rich back in episode 189. But maybe, you know, just a, a quick synopsis for those who are hearing about you for the first time, Rich, how would you, how do you define the Menlo way? And I'm curious, you know, has the Menlo way evolved in the eight years since we've talked? Has, has it changed a lot or is it sort of a bedrock that remains consistent, even if circumstances about the business do change? Yeah. You know, I, I think the Menlo way is, um, it, it draws from a lot of different sources and, Quite frankly, that's why you and I got connected so long ago, because we absolutely draw from lean thinking, from agile thinking, from uh, project management institute, from systems thinking, from positive organizational psychology thinking. Um, so uh, I would say if you came in today, Mark, and saw Menlo in its current form, uh, there would certainly have been adjustments made largely due to the pandemic, as opposed to we fundamentally change the process, uh, you would still be able to see all the same elements and the same spirit and energy behind the process. But as I'm sure we'll talk about in our uh, time together this morning, there were some in, uh, severe adaptations we had to make that were very different from our first 19 years. And uh, just to give the listeners a little bit of a um, uh, uh, insight into our history, uh, we just this past Sunday celebrated our 21st birthday as a company, and uh, we, we joke that it's now legal for us to drink. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. but, uh, you know, the elements of the Menlo Way start with, as Simon Sinek would say, start with our why. Why do we exist? What do we believe? We want to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology and uh, the more positive bend on that is we want to return joy to software development. I believe joy has been missing for a long time in our industry. Quite frankly, it was missing for me personally. And that's how, uh, you know, when people come in like, how did you think of this? Uh, it was 15 years of pain uh, in my own personal career where I realized there's got to be a better way of doing things. And, um, you know, for us, it's an experimental mindset. Uh, it is one that says, uh, you know, I think Mike Rother is very proud of us in terms of how we do this. Uh, we're probably not quite as formal as Mike would like us to be. And I appreciate always Mike's thinking on this uh, subject. But one of the more common phrases here at Memo is let's run the experiment. And that's where a lot of the adaptations come from along the way. So, yeah, yeah, lots of experiments um, and new things over the last two years. And, you know, I'm curious, Rich, given your previous experiences and, and what Unfortunately, might be happening at other companies, you know, today, even when you, when you talk about returning joy, you know, what are some of the main things that drain joy out of people? You know, you, you talk a lot about eliminating fear. Is that one of the main causes of, of this loss of joy? Or are there other other things that, um, that sort of just suck the joy out of people? Well, you know, I, I think there's no doubt, uh, Mark, that if I were to write the opposite book of Joy, Inc., it would be called Fear, Inc., and, uh, you know, the, the way the industry is typically organized, the way software teams are typically organized, uh, it, it ends up in a high hero, high overtime type of environment where you have individuals, towers of knowledge, as we call them, that uh, know everything about a particular subsystem and nobody else knows what they know. And 
the only way to scale a hero-based system is over time. And our fundamental belief is that tired programmers make bad software and we don't want to make bad software. And so, you know, there's a scaling issue in software teams where, uh, where we scale the individual rather than have a process and a people process that scales, which is really probably the miraculous thing we've accomplished over the last 21 years. Uh, we are able to do something that most people say there's a law against called Brooks law. It says you can't do what you suggest you're doing rich. And it's, uh, obviously we've disproved it because we have, if a project here is behind and it needs to go faster, we add more people. And, you know, that's an easy thing to say. And it is, you know, as we get into the details of how we work, it's fundamental to the process we use here. Just to give you a little bit of a peek into that, everyone here works two to a computer. Two people, one computer, sharing a keyboard and a mouse collaborating on the same task at the same time. This isn't, hey, Mark, come help me with my work. This is our work done together. And those pairs switch, systematically switch, at least every five days. So we have no one person on the team that is a singular tower of knowledge about any one particular point because they are having to share their knowledge with each other through this paired work. And the delightful thing is, let's say four people working on a project for a few months, and they're switching in their pairs every week. So you get three good combinations of people. And we'll probably bring others in from time to time to cover vacations and outs and that sort of thing. Uh, but then the customer comes to us and says, hey, guys, uh, something happened in our business. We need you to go twice as fast. Well, we'll bring four more people in, pair them with the original four. And suddenly we have, within a couple of weeks, a team that is producing twice the output of the original team at twice the size with the same work schedule. And we we tend to adhere to a pretty strict 40 hour a week work schedule. No weekends, no overtime, no denying of vacation requests and that sort of thing. And you know, and I think that's where the fear creeps in in a lot of organizations when, you know, say the boss stops by and says, hey, Mark, how's it going? How's that project you're working on? Are you coming in this weekend? Uh, you're not really thinking of taking a vacation next week, are you? I mean, we're pretty close to the deadline, Mark. And of course, fear starts to rise, you know, pressure mounts, uh, individual pressure mounts. Here, we just don't have that. Uh, and it's, you know, we work on hard projects, we work on long projects, we work on complex projects. Uh, but our belief, again, is you want to create as Kent Beck said in his original book on this topic, Extreme Programming Explained, a sustainable work pace. And software projects, especially these days, are often very big and very long and require a lot of people. And if you don't have a sustainable work pace, you're going to get to a certain point where your team burns out. They just fire. And now they're not bringing their brains in to work with them every day. You know, I think it's interesting you mention sustainable work pace. Um, that makes me think of Toyota when I used to live in, in Texas and I would bring healthcare people into the Toyota truck plant in San Antonio. Uh, they would see a sustainable work pace. You know, I think for people who had never been in a factory before, they, they're not sure what to expect. They maybe picture maybe because of the word lean, that people are going to be frantically running around. And, and that's not the case. It's a sustainable work pace because there are you know, good systems that really support the people who need that type of work. I'm sure people would see the same thing at Menlo. 
Yeah, in in a lot of our system, Mark, as you can easily imagine, has to do with how do we manage the workflow here? How do we break the work down into, into achievable chunks so that we can give people a chance to go to work and get meaningful things done? How do we keep their focus on a single task rather than the traditional environment of multitasking, right, which isn't actually humanly possible in the <laughs> the thrashing that occurs as you switch from one thing to another, to another, Mm -hmm. and you go home after long days and you, and you feel like, you know what, I worked really hard today. I worked really long today and I got nothing done. Mm -hmm. And I think the ability to go to work and get meaningful things done is probably one of the most joyful aspects of our system. So I think it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, Rich, the, the paired work. You mentioned Kent Beck. He's really associated with that. And extreme programming, we think of paired programming. But it, as you write about it in the new book, I mean, there's this broader paired work that's taking place. And, you know, it just occurred to me, you know, I'd gone to your website. I had downloaded the free chapter of Chief Joy Officer. And um, I got an email that came back. You know, I noticed there was We Language. And it was signed Erica and Lisa, um, paired work, even in um, sort of, I guess, this marketing or public relations function. Really interesting to see. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, guess what? Erica and Lisa like to take vacations, too. They both have families. They, uh, you know, and so, again, no singular dependence on an individual, which is how you know every organization I was part of before you always had you know, these towers, these heroes, these people who were specific to one particular thing. And when they went on vacation, some part of the process stopped. And my co-founder, James, and I often joke, imagine a Toyota plant where, you know, there's one guy in charge of putting doors on the cars and he takes a two week vacation and everybody's looking around the plant. They're like, so why are all these cars missing their doors? And why are all these doors up over there and like well you know mark went on vacation and he's in charge of doors and we just can't do doors this week so but we want to we want to keep everybody else busy so we're going to keep building cars and when mark comes back well he's going to be a little busy because he's got about ten thousand doors to install the day back right and you know and, and it sounds silly right I mean, you'd see it in a plant. You'd be like, no, you can't organize your plant that way. That's the dumbest thing I ever saw. And then you go into offices and they're all organized like that. Well, you know, and I think at a lot of companies, people view their job and the work they do. You know, there's the, there's the, the I and the me language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when there's fear, there's job security, I think, and, and people identifying with their work. They'd say, oh, well, you know, Rich can't get rid of me. Yep. Um, but I think for people to share that responsibility, it, it probably requires you and other leaders to eliminate the fear that might cause all sorts of dysfunction. Well, let's and let's talk about where that fear, where that fear rubber really hits the road. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you're in an organization that has great posters on the wall and has inspiring speeches from leaders about teamwork and collaboration and trust. Right. And yet there comes that magical day in December when you sit down in your boss's office and the door closes and you have your annual performance review. Mm-hmm. And bosses, so let's talk about your individual performance. Mm-hmm. And right then and there, 
all the world of posters and inspiring speeches and, and language and values and all that kind of stuff about teamwork, collaboration, trust, just, just collapses in on itself. Because when it comes to my job, my position, my level, my pay rate, you know, my ability to even keep my job, it, it's clear in that discussion, yeah, that other stuff, that's just rhetoric. When we're down to the things that most matter to you, Mark, we're going to be talking about your individual performance goal. That doesn't even make sense in a team-based environment to talk about. So do, do you have you eliminated those individual performance reviews or do you just give them less weight? You know, it, it's it's even weirder than that. <laughs> we'll go down a lot of rabbit holes here today. We've eliminated bosses. We've never had any bosses here. So there would be no one for you to sit down and have your annual performance review with, even if we did have such a system. Uh, and the team devised the system by which people um, get feedback, uh, develop a growth plan, and uh, and ultimately get raises and promotions. And it's it's a project. Uh, one of the delightful things that we've um, invented during the pandemic, uh, or reinvented, because we've always had a system like this. It got a lot better in the last couple of years. Uh, we named a project Prosperity, and I gave the team the full, you know freedom to do whatever they're, they want to do in this. But I told them, I said, do not make this process about raises and promotion. Make it about personal of people and the raises and promotions will follow. And what they devised is just, it's so beautiful. We do tours of it. So people can come and take a, take a free tour of what we call our prosperity uh, uh, process about how do we give feedback to team members in order to grow them. And here's the weird thing, uh, I think, about every one of our people practices. We want you to succeed. I, I know that sounds silly, but think of, think of how many interview processes are actually set up to try and get people to fail. Our interview is exactly the opposite. We give you hints. We give you explicit instructions. This is how you succeed here. And guess what? The same instructions we give you during the interview are the same ones we're going to give you when we're onboarding you and the same ones we're going to give you when you're growing here. Make your pair partner look good. Support the person sitting next to you, right? Be a good kindergartner. Play well with others. Collaborate. And and it's not just a poster on the wall. It's actually how we work every single day. Well, I love the way, I mean, you call that weird. I, I wouldn't call it weird. I, I think it's unusual in a good way uh, to, to eliminate those annual performance reviews. I, I don't know if this is becoming trendy again. I've, I've seen a couple of articles this year. I'm going to write probably a blog post about this soon about companies or people who are advocating to get rid of the annual performance review. And you know, it makes me think back to you know, W. Edwards Deming, who said in no uncertain terms, eliminate the annual performance review. But he wasn't saying don't develop people. He wasn't saying don't give them feedback. It was meant to be a more continual process. And, you know, I also make what you're saying makes me think of a different Demingism. He would say the role of the manager is not to judge through annual reviews, the role of a manager is to help people succeed. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny, I found out after I'd written the books, because I'd always been a big fan of Deming, uh, as 
probably no surprise to you. Um, and then I find out that Deming himself used the word joy a lot. And, um, and it was just fascinating to me. You know, in fact, uh, chapter 10 of, um, of Chief Joy Officer, I use a Deming quote uh, as an epitaph. And it says, management's overall aim should be to create a system in which everyone may take joy in their work. And I would say if that is, if there was one phrase from Deming that describes our intention in terms of creating Menlo, that is it. Well, I, I love that. And um, Dr. Deming would talk about, he would write about what he called uh, the forces of destruction, you know, that oh, yeah. drain joy yep. from the workplace. And I think that would include mm -hmm. annual reviews and targets, quotas, and incentives, um, the dysfunctions that come with those. But, you know, I think people come into their career, I'm sure they come into a workplace like Menlo Innovations, they, they're, you know, they come in there as excited as they'll ever be. We want to make sure we, we don't let that drop. And so I think, you know, Dr. Deming would give that advice of, you know, don't demoralize people, don't let the forces of destruction, including fear, get in the way with people having joy in their work. Right. No, I, and I used to say, Mark, that in, in onboarding is is probably onboarding is one of the worst HR practices ever invented. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I used to say as a hiring manager, my old way of doing things that my job was to try and get you productive before I demoralized you, which is exactly what Deming's <laughs> talking about. Right? right. And, you know, and I always say the best day on a new job isn't the first day because that's often one of the worst days, right? Mm. Oh, Mark, we're really glad you're here, but we forgot to get a table, a desk, a chair, a computer, an email address, but we're really glad you're here, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, and that project you were so perfect for, we canceled it between the day you were now. And, you know, so we don't know what to do with you, but here, here's this book that I wrote, Joy Inc. You know, you should sit in the conference room and read it. <laughs> You know, it's like, really? Like, seriously? I mean, why is it that when people join, it feels like a surprise that you might have to teach them something? And, uh, you know, the pairing aspect of Menlo, I'll just say it as bluntly as I can, trivializes onboarding. Trivialize. Because you're never alone. You're never more than a foot away from somebody who can answer the question that's on your mind. And then we encourage you to ask those questions. We encourage you to say, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's the sign of a healthy culture where people are willing and able to say, I don't know, you know, where they, they don't have the fear um, to go make something up where they're, uh, you know, BSing you or maybe even worse, BSing a customer. Right. I mean, it's funny we should be talking about this because right there, you can see what I'm pointing. There's a poster that you can't read. It's on the pillar there. And what it says is one of our bigger posters says, it's okay to say, I don't. Well, I think in, you know, probably a fear Inc company, the dynamics are one where if you're new, if you're a new employee, you're told, and it might often be really subtle. You know, if I, if you have a new idea, just, whoa, just, you know, shut up. You don't know how we do things here. Um, you should just absorb how we do it, where I think in a Joy Inc. company, people would feel free um, to speak up from, from their fresh perspectives, to ask questions, to, to, to make suggestions, to make things better. Yeah, and 
that goes to a phrase here that they will learn very quickly. When somebody has an idea, the answer isn't, well, we've never done it that way before, or I think that's against policy, or we tried that five years ago and it didn't work then. The answer is typically, I don't know, let's run the experiment, see what happens. You can sign up at least one other person to join you in that experiment. The odds that you're going to be able to try something new, see how it works, but also the willingness to say, okay, that didn't work quite the way I was hoping. How could we make an adjustment? You know, and, and that's why I think, you know, Mike Rother and Kata and all that sort of thing is, you know, it's, it's the same spirit and energy behind that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would propose, I mean, I think this is a common scenario. If somebody is skeptical about a change or an idea, there you go. You can say, let's run the experiment and see if it works. I mean, there's there's a filter I often use of, well, if the idea seems really unlikely to physically hurt somebody, then let, let's go and run the right. experiment. You know, and, and it gets back, and I, I talk to a lot of people about this, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, how do you trust people to run good experiments? Like, well, number one, if, if, you're, if you're building a team of people you don't trust, you might want to take a harder look at how you're building your team. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, I think – call it managerially, people are like, we're going to come off the rails here. People are going to be, oh, they're going to be sending free money out to customers because they <laughs> think that's a good experiment. Like, really? I mean, do you really think people are going to do that? Because I think there's, and I'll just say it about us, you know, people ask us, you know, what's part of the memo magic? And I think part of it is people believe in what we do here. The people who join here, belief in the approach we're taking and why we take it and what its purpose is. Now, I would guess some of the reasons they can believe that is because we can explain it to them. You know, we set reasonable, rational, you know, explainable uh, uh, expectations for people about how we work. You know, so nobody's going to come into Menlo and say, for example, you know what? I think we should just stop that whole pairing I think that's my experiment. Let's just stop pairing for a week. And, you know, I think they would reasonably expect they would get, no, we're not going to try that experiment. Uh, and why? Because the expectations about the basics of how we work are pretty well set, pretty well understood. Now, you know, people might say, for example, <laughs> last couple of years, maybe we could do remote pairing. Maybe we don't have to be physical office together and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think generally speaking, rational human beings are going to behave rationally. Yeah. I mean, I've had similar conversations with a lot of healthcare leaders where they have, um, they have a fear. I don't, I don't, I was going to say an irrational fear, but that's not a good word. Nobody wants to be called um, irrational, but we can think and ask, what is that fear Based on, you know, I, I think in kind of a baseline Fear Inc. organization, employees have probably usually been conditioned to be too cautious. So as as we help them become experimentalists, I mean, I, I think right. we ha we have to help them take more risks. I think it's unlikely that they're going to become super reckless, but we need to, you know, if anything, my fear would be people are are still fearful. I keep using that word a lot, right? We're going to help them become experimentalists. And, and that means eliminating fear for employees and right. for leaders. Well, and in a healthcare environment, I'm guessing, for example, one of the biggest fears is speaking up. 
Unfortunately, you know, say, yeah. Speaking up to a doctor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and figuring out what are the patterns we can use to encourage people to wash their hands. Right? Yeah, there's a lot and, of hierarchy. Um, there's a, yeah, a lot of fear. And, and it's, that's often where the fear comes in. And, you know, and th- again, go back to that annual performance review day, right? Ultimately, those forms typically come down to two boxes, two check boxes, only one of which is going to get checked. And I'm pretty sure most people don't go into their annual performance review thinking, yeah, I pretty much just met expectations this year. No, like, yes, I exceeded expectations. This is my year. This is going to be the big one, right? And then the boss says, well, you know, only 3.7% of you can exceed expectations this year. And, and you did it five years ago, so you got to wait your turn. You know, yeah. everywhere we, yeah. we could start every fear ink lesson right out of the how are those boxes getting checked? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, to not get too sidetracked on this, you've triggered a memory. I mean, the last time I worked for a company, big company that did these annual performance reviews, I think the annual scale went up to a nine, and, and my boss told me in the annual review, you know, I was, I, I, I was giving you an eight, but then, you know, some vice president told me we can only give so many eights. So we've, we've bumped you down to a seven. And I think, well, what, well, why, why even tell me all that? I don't, I don't know how that was all helpful or motivating. Yeah. I can't imagine if Deming were in this conversation right now. It's like, what are you doing? Giving a human being a number on a zero to 10 scale. Come on. Seriously. And who? here's the beautiful question. And and this is why our team does all the work around uh, giving feedback, right? How on earth would I know how you're doing here? I'm in in a one-hour conversation with you right now. I'm not out there on the floor watching how Dan's doing in relationship to a customer. You know who is? His pair partner. And then next week's pair partner and next week's pair partner. You think the people you pair with every day, every minute of every day might, if they're well coached and how to give feedback to people and what to watch for and what our expectations are, you think they might be better equipped to give Dan some really, you know, uh, informative feedback about what it might take to grow to the next level here. Well, I want to ask one other question, Rich, when it comes to hiring, Um, a lot of people, Talk about hiring uh, for culture, hiring for attitude, hiring for fit, that we can teach everything else. And one thing you highlight is a, a word um, that's important to Toyota, and, that, and that's humility. So I'm, I'm curious if you are interviewing in a way that looks for humility. Is it easier to find uh, a lack of humility? How, how do you, you know, uh, how, how would you, how do you think about that? Well, it's, it's very important because you can imagine if two people are working together and, and, you know, I've got an idea and it's gotta be my idea, you know, and it's gotta win, right? It's just not going to work here. Right. For time, the team just, they, they won't want to work with you. You know, if every time you have a argument, if every time you have an idea, your way needs to work. And so we try and coach people right from the moment of first contact is, help the person sitting with you succeed. And that is kind of a subjugation of self, uh, an expression of humility at that particular moment. And we're teaching it 
right in the moment of first contact. And I used to say, Mark, that we hired for culture fit. I don't say that anymore. If you saw the variety of people we have gathered in this team, um, I kept I kept watching the team we built. And I kept reflecting on this hire for culture fit thing. And I thought, there's some incongruity here. What is it? And I realized what we're actually doing is not hiring for culture fit. We're teaching our cultural expectations from the moment of first contact. And if you teach reasonable, rational ideas, you know, that that can be explained and are visible, most people will respond positively to that. Now, and, and I think the people we end up filtering out are the people who, A, don't believe it. They say, oh, yeah, whatever, teamwork, collaboration, trust. I know what they really want. They want me to exert my, you know, <laughs> my authority over this person sitting next to me. That's how I get ahead here. And that'll end up, you know, if you can't adapt within our first interview uh, and we do an audition, we don't do, we don't ask questions. We never ask questions during the interview process of the candidate, which is weird, right? Again, you know, people are like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) It's not an interview. It's an audition. You come in, we pair you with another human being who's also interviewing, competing for the same position you are. And then we tell you, Mark, your job is to help the person sitting next to you succeed. Make your partner look good. Demonstrate good kindergarten skills. And you might suck at it for the first pairing. Right. You may be terrible. You may be nervous. You may be trying to prove something. And then we pair you again with another person for another 20 minutes and we do it three times. And we will literally when we review you deciding whether we invite you back for a second interview. Somebody might say, you know, there's three three Menlonians who watched you pair in three different pairings. Right. And the first person might say, oh, thumbs down. No way. Right. I saw terrible behavior. Person, next person says, you know, it's doing okay. And the third person, double thumbs up. And, and, uh, yeah. and you know, there's been an interesting set of, you know, almost uh, humor around this. Um, you know, some people are like, well, what if Mark was learning to fake it? You know, fake collaboration. And, uh, and my co-founder, James, had a funny response. There. <laughs> right. He says, can he fake it for 40 hours a week? Because I don't, I don't care if he's an ax murderer in his off time, you know, it's like, as long as he can make collaboration while he's here, that's awesome. Um, and, uh, but the other, uh, the other part of it is, wow, look at how quickly Mark adapted in just a couple of hours, right? Once we started setting clear expectations for Mark, he adapted. And I think that's the lesson I've learned in the last few years about human beings. Guess what? We're incredibly adaptable creatures when you set out reasonable, clear, rational expectations for people. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one other question about the interview dynamic. Let's say I think you you said, well, these people might be competing for a position. That that competition seems different than to what the internal, what the culture would be like within Menlo. Like, are there ever paired positions where? Like you, you may have, you, you describe people rotating through these different pairs, but I, I'm, I'm just curious, like, would you try to structure hirings where, you know, people are collaborating so they can both get hired beyond trying to make your paired partner look good? Um, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but I could, uh, I could imagine going in one direction of 
is there collusion in the interview process? Like, I'll make you look good if you make me look good. Well, um, well no, it wasn't that. Let, let, me, let, me, let me try again. It was just a question of, like, um, if you have people pairing with each other and they know there's only one position. Oh, I see. Yeah. That, that, that drives a little competition that would not be part of the daily culture within Menlo. I don't mean to be critical. I'm just no, trying no, to I, think I, through I, some I, of the dynamics. What are, what are the simple human characteristics that would say, hey, uh, you know, and, and I would say uh, we wouldn't do our, you know, mass interview process if there was only one position. It, 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 okay, gotcha. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be sensible to, to go through that amount of effort mm-hmm. for just one open spot. And we have other ways of bringing in kind of singletons uh, outside of the mass interview process. And maybe about a third of our team has come in that, that way. Um, but it is still the case that uh, they understand that, you know, if there's 30 of them, we may only be opening positions for four. And so again, it is that's back to that humility piece you you brought up earlier. Am I willing to say, even within the context of this interview, I might not make it? That's okay. I, I'm going to come for the experience. I'm going to demonstrate the best version of myself as I can, and I'll leave you know it open to the you know the the whims of you know who showed up and how did I do that day and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, again, every interview process is, uh, you know, everyone, every one of them, including ours, has strengths and it has weaknesses. And, uh, you know, and we will miss good people from time to time and we will bring on bad fits from time to time. And that stuff has to be sorted out later. Uh, one of the things I think that people appreciate about our process and maybe different from a lot of companies, at least ones I used to work for, is you can try as many times as you like. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. If people had a good experience and didn't get the job, how often do they come back again to try? Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a famous story in Chief Joy Officer about one of our programmers, Scott, who's now been with us for probably close to 10 years. uh, And he failed the first time and came back a year later and said, I'd like to try again. We're like, of course. And he made it through, but just barely, just barely squeaked through. Uh, And we decided, because the last part of the process is what we call a three-week paid trial. So Scott came in for three weeks. And uh, at the end of the three weeks, the team was really kind of torn. They were seeing really good things, and they were seeing some really concerning things. So they went back to Scott, and they, they did something very unusual. Team's in charge of this process, so they get to decide this stuff. They said, you know, Scott. We're not comfortable saying yes yet. We're also equally uncomfortable saying no and sending you away. Would you be willing to consider another three-week trial right now? Paid again. So he's getting paid. It isn't like, you know, some torturous free internship. Um, And he's like, yeah, I don't have a job right now. Why not? Right. And so weeks one and two of the second three-week trial he was still failing in important ways. He was failing to respond to the feedback we were getting. And he grabbed David in the middle of that second week trial, who was the guy he was paired with. And he said, David, I don't want to fail. Help me succeed. And Dave's like, great. What can I do for you? Right. This isn't like, no, I'm not going to let you trick the system. Like, tell me what you need and I'll help you. And all Scott said was, you know what? You guys keep giving me feedback at the end of the day and the end of the week. And it's not actionable. I need it in the moment. And the biggest challenge we had was Scott 
wouldn't think out loud. He'd go quiet. He'd be typing, and, and he always had good answers. That's why the team was confounded. But the rest of the time, he'd be sitting there like this. Like, we're not sure he likes being here. We're not sure he's engaged. We're not sure he's paying attention. But then every time he said something, it was clear, oh, my gosh, you're exactly paying attention. And all we did was we said, Scott, you, you, and so David, every time Scott went quiet, David's like, you're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then he yeah. started talking. And the joke now is yeah. we can't get Scott to shut up. <laughs> so, again, he was yeah. able to adapt. Scott is a very introverted person. He's, I was just wondering. Yep. Yeah. And, and our team is filled with introverted people. Yeah. We'd have to corner yeah. the market on extroverted program. <laughs> you know, if, if that's what we were requiring. And quite frankly, sure. I, I, I think the team will declare it easily. We couldn't handle a lot of, we couldn't handle an overwhelming number of extroverts on our team. It just wouldn't work. This is a very introverted team. Sure. But what I hear you describing, Rich, is you're kind of teaching the culture. The culture is get better at thinking out loud. Right. That, that can be taught. And, and ask questions and make sure we know what you're, what you're considering and, all that kind of stuff, uh, because ultimately, you know, and again, it gets back to, um, uh, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What's our goal here? And if, you know, in a traditional organization, the goal might be, well, I want to get a raise or I want to get a job. And our goal is, no, we want to create great software for our clients. And, um, you know, it, uh-huh. and so it's, uh, it's a caring you know, and, and you know, in chapter 11 of Chief Joy Officer, I talk about how do we care for the team? And again, I, I love this epitaph from John Wooden, the famous coach from UCLA. He said, I worry that business leaders are more interested in material gain than they are in having the patience to build up a strong organization. And a strong organization starts with caring for their people. And so there should be evidence of caring as often as possible. And, you know, it seems like that seems deeply connected to joy um, in, in chief joy officer. You know, you, you, you talk about um, letting people be their full authentic selves at work and caring for people and celebrating them. And, and I one thing I was going to ask you to, to talk a little bit about pandemic time adjustment. So, you know, you, you, you write, um, you know, vividly about this idea of this proverbial mask that people wear in the workplace or that leaders might wear the way we feel pressured to behave or present ourselves. And, you know, so I'm curious, you know, thinking back to, you know, as you wrote about in these blog posts, uh, March, 2020, when we're all trying to figure out what's happening, how long is it going to last? What does it mean? Not just for the business, but what does it mean as individuals? You know, how, how were you, I'm curious, how, how was it for you, Rich, to be, your authentic whole self at work that might include all these fears and uncertainties for yourself, for Menlo, for our country, for our world. I mean, how, how was it to navigate that? Yeah, I, I will say I was scared and I was panicking when, when the pandemic hit uh, because what we were being asked to do that week of March 16th of 2020 was turn Menlo inside out, upside down and go to the alternative universe, the inverted universe. 
right? You're going to take a team that has been shoulder to shoulder, closely collaborative. Uh, you're going to put them all in their individual home offices. Uh, you're going to take your high tech anthropology practice, which is all of that's our go to the Gemba team. And they're not going to be able to go to the Gemba anymore because you can't get on airplanes and you wouldn't have a Gemba to go to anyways, because they're all. And then you're going to take the guy who goes out and speaks about joy and, and take him off airplanes and he doesn't get to meet people. And Oh, by the way, these thousands of people who come and visit us, they can't do that anymore either. And, and I will tell you in that moment, I thought, I couldn't, I couldn't see a path out. I saw, you know what, it, it was like that, uh, you know, that uh, image I have of Harry Houdini. <laughs> it's like, shackle him up, put him in a straight jacket, put weights around his ankles, throw him in the ice cold water, and let's see if he can survive. And I thought, there's no way. There's no way. And, and I'll be honest, Mark, in that moment, I thought, I honestly thought this was the end. And I thought, you know what? That's okay. You had 19 years. It was a good run. You accomplished what you set out to do. Nothing to be ashamed of. You couldn't have anticipated this. And, um, and I remember there was one day where Erica was sitting near me and, uh, uh, and she's relatively new. So she didn't know me that well. And, and I said, Erica, what is today? She said, it's Tuesday. I said, no, no, no. What day is it? She's like, you know, it's March 17th. I said, no, no, no. What day of the week is it? <laughs> She's like, it's Tuesday. And then she swings her head looking over at my co-founder at kind of like, did Rich just have a stroke or something? You know, and Jane, Jane looks at her and says, don't worry about him. He's just panicking. He'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and what was neat, Mark, and it, it there was a turning point happened pretty quickly. Uh, and I, I credit Molly for this, one of our senior high-tech anthropologists. We were trying to figure out how to do our first high-tech anthropology engagement in this pandemic world, right? Where we can't go on an airplane. We're going to have to do it all remotely. And I'm thinking, yeah, this will never work. You know, I mean, but I'm not sharing these thoughts with the team. They're all in my head. I'm just, you know, screaming, uh, you know, the run for the exits kind of thing in my head. And she goes, this will be so exciting to figure out how to do this. And right then and there, it was like this grand relief because suddenly I looked around as best you could virtually. And I thought, wait a minute, they're all adapting. This is, this is your problem, not theirs. They're figuring out how to do this. And it was in that moment where I realized all the things we had done for 19 years, the communication, the collaboration, the trust, the relationship, the focus on human energy, the empathy we have for the people we serve and others, all of it was coming to bear on this unique situation we're in. And in some ways, it dawned to me, unbeknownst to me, we were building an organization that was going to be ready for this dramatic effect. And, and everything, every bank account we had filled up with, you know, <laughs> relationship dollars and every bank account we filled up with joy versus fear, it was all paying off right then and there. Um, and wow, it was a pretty cool moment. That sounds like then the culmination of, um, yeah, all that effort to build whatever words come to mind, resiliency, agility, adaptability, um, because I guess it can't, it goes to show you can't force that. You can't use speech and say, Hey, everybody go be 
go be nimble, go be agile. You you built that culture and and gave people the freedom to adapt. Yeah, and, and trust your team. Yeah, and you know, and that was so, a big lesson for me. So then, you know, as you wrote about these blog posts, you know, the shift to 100% remote and then starting to bring, starting to allow people to come back into the office. And I'm just curious, you know, some reflections on what people figured out about fully remote work or, or hybrid work, whether it's in the structure of these pairs or just in general for Menlo. What do you think some of the greatest adaptations have been? Well, you know, the first is the part that everybody's curious about who knows us well. They're like, how'd you make the remote pairing thing work? And honestly, that was the easiest thing. You and I are remote pairing in a conversation to create a podcast right now. You know, you easily come to Menlo, set up your microphone, your computer, we could have been together and all that sort of thing, but we're doing it remotely, right? Not hard to imagine. If we're programming together, we're going to have a second screen, the code we're co-developing that we're discussing. I think actually in some ways, pair programming remotely might be just slightly easier because um, for one simple physical reason, you and I can actually look at each other. When we're pairing shoulder to shoulder, if I want to look at you, I actually have to turn my body and look at you and then look back at the screen. In this case, I just have to dart my eyes back and forth between the coat and the screen. Uh, And so that part was easy. And we had been doing remote pairing for our clients for a decade prior prior to now. The harder part, and this is the part that still worries me, and I think we're paying a little bit of a, we'll call it a work from home tax uh, on this, is the serendipity that happens when the pairs are sitting close to one another and they're overhearing and supporting each other. And we just we just saw that the other day where there was one pair that was working on something and another pair had solved it and they didn't know it. And I think, you know, those are the moments where like, yeah, this isn't, I, I, I the simpler way I describe it is it's working. It is not ideal. And it's also, I mean, and you wrote about this in the blog post, um, adaptations to the, the stand-up meeting to make that an effective virtual stand-up, virtual tours. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit? One thing you wrote about I think was interesting was, uh, you know, in the spirit of let's figure it out, let's experiment, was your recognition that the, the, the virtual 15-minute stand-up wasn't really enough time, that you added some lunch sessions, you added some other time that wasn't happening in the physical workplace. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. And then it was actually, again, the team leading that effort. They, uh, you know, of course, when you're, one of the things I think is a challenge in the pandemic that isn't as much a challenge for us as it is most organizations is loneliness and isolation. Because we're all paired together and we're switching the pairs at least every five days, you still have a social connection with the people at work. We aren't, we are apart physically to be safe and healthy. We are not apart socially. We, we just thought the idea of social distancing was an incorrect term, at least in our context. And so physical uh, distancing was important. Social distancing not required. However, one of the things the team noticed early on was they don't see Rich and James anymore. Yeah, they're used to us just being out in the room and saying good morning to them and, hey, how'd that sales conversation go that I saw you in yesterday? And they just weren't seeing that. How are you guys doing, right? How are you feeling about things? How's the, how, our, you know, how's revenue and all that kind of stuff? 
And so the team said, could we get together with you? And we established this pattern of what we call Thursday lunch with Rich and James. And today is Thursday. We'll, we'll, we have one of those scheduled. And we started this maybe like three weeks into the pandemic. And it is now a staple. Every Thursday, they have lunch with Rich and James. And James isn't going to be there today. And I will or you know, I mean, sometimes we're both not there. So now we call it Thursday with or without Rich and James, you know, but, yeah. um, but the fact of the matter is it was this regular connecting point. And, you know, when people are in the building, some of them would gather in a room with the, the owl camera and then the people who are at home, you know, cause we're obviously we're not 100% remote anymore. And, um, and so that has been a really good addition to our culture. And topics we talk about are timely topics, topics of interest in that moment. And so early on in the pandemic, a lot of discussions about financials because we took a big financial hit early on in the pandemic. Right now, because we're moving to a new building soon, they're really curious about the new space and how's the lease negotiation going and all that kind of stuff. And just a final question on that before we wrap up. You said in, in the one blog post where pre-pandemic, you might have expected to need to move to a bigger space. Are, are you indeed, you said, well, maybe we actually need a smaller space. Um, is that how it's playing out? It is. Uh, yeah, we, we would have, in our vision, we anticipated the next move would be three times the physical size of our current space, mm-hmm. which would have been huge. Um, and right now, uh, if we go ahead with the lease we're negotiating, it'll be slightly smaller than the space we have today. Um, and just, but just slightly, uh, it'll still be a big open room. Uh, you know, you've been here, uh, this is in the, uh, sunlightless basement of a parking (laughs) structure in downtown Antarctica. This is going to have lots of windows, uh, amazing amount of glass and ability to look out on nature and see sunlight and all that sort of thing. So uh, I know the team's excited about uh, moving yeah. up to the ground level so we can. <laughs> <laughs> I am. So. Yeah. The, the Menlo way is not predicated on being in a windowless basement space. Right. That's no. good to know. <laughs> no, I, I would say uh, we proved that the Menlo way could survive being 10 years in a windowless basement. <laughs> and now we're done proving that point. We'll go prove some other points next. Well, Rich, again, thank you for sharing your stories of adaptation and you know figuring things out based on that culture that you've built there at Menlo. You know, I really look forward to someday being back in Ann Arbor. Um, Come see the new space. And in the meantime, I'm really excited. I'll see you in Traverse City, you know, the Michigan Lean Consortium Annual Conference. Uh, Again, that's August 10th and 11th, Traverse City, Michigan. MichiganLean.org is where you can learn more about that. Uh, In the meantime, uh, please do check out Rich's books, um, Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. There will be links to those in the show notes. And again, if you come to the um, MLC conference, you can ask Rich your own questions. I I hope I've asked decent questions here today. I really do appreciate your answers and the conversation here. It's always fun talking with you, Mark. And for your listeners who either haven't been to Michigan or haven't been to that part of Michigan, there could be no more beautiful spot in the United States than Traverse City in August. So just that alone should be worth the price of admission to getting to the conference. And obviously, if uh, people come, we'll have some great conversations with them. Yeah, the, the Michigan Lean Consortium is running the event, but it's not limited to those with the Michigan driver's license. Right.
<laughs> but you know, I hope some people will come travel in for this. If you are, if you live in Michigan, the Michigan Lean Consortium has all kinds of great opportunities, ways to learn and network um, throughout the year. So again, check them out, michiganlean.org. Again, our guest today has been Rich Sheridan, CEO of Menlo Innovations. Thank you so much for being here, Rich. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.